Hey guys, thanks for watching another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. Uh, if you've been watching the news or watching the show or reading antiwar.com or anything, you know the world seems to be falling apart. So I figured I'd have the best man to have on when the world's falling apart. Human Encyclopedia, director for the Libertarian Institute, Scott Horton. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing good, Reed. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you, man. Hey. Um, <clears throat> so you actually have a new book that's come out since I had you on last time. Why don't we just start off by talking about that? It's called Hotter Than the Sun. I haven't read it yet, but it's about uh, nuclear weapons, which is certainly a, uh, a topic that is at the forefront of the news. So what's the book about? Yeah, well, uh, the funny story is a friend of mine just emailed me and said, look what I did. And he had transcribed 350 pages worth of interviews that I've done over the last 15 or 20 years about nuclear weapons with all kinds of different experts. So, no, I'm not sure that might sound like a turn off to some people, a book of transcripts, but man, it's really good. And essentially the sections as it's broken down are the threat of war between the major powers, then the nuclear industrial complex, the nuclear programs of the so-called rogue states and then Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then all the anti-nuclear activists who've been working their whole lives to get rid of the damn things. And including people who you might not suspect, like Henry Kissinger and George Shultz and William Perry, and people who essentially have what you would think would be like some kind of radical left position against nuclear weapons because of how intimately familiar they are with the power of these machines. And then on top of that, with the shallowness of the political thinking and the strategic thinking of the people on both sides and and how close we've come to nuclear war so many times in the past and so you have these people you know william perry schultz is dead now um william perry is in his 80s and he's spending his last years on the earth saying man we've got to get rid of these things and before it's too late before you see and i think people really don't know very much about nuclear weapons but you know, even uh, essentially like a 15 to 20 kiloton bomb like they dropped on Hiroshima was enough to completely erase the entire city off the face of the earth. A single, you know, one or two megaton bomb, thermonuclear hydrogen bombs, like are likely to hit American cities, even at just a couple of megatons, Reed, is enough to kill all of Dallas or all of Houston, all of Atlanta, the whole damn metropolitan area. All of it, all in New York City, the five boroughs, dead, dead, dead from one H-bomb. And so you have people like, not that I interviewed Perry, but we talk about him in there. And, and frankly, I think this is probably the best place to start the interview, and I should always try to remember this, is that Ronald Reagan, when he came into power, was an anti-Soviet hawk, deliberately playing a brinksmanship game. The Soviets had introduced more, I guess, mid-range missiles into Europe. And Reagan said, oh yeah, and started pouring, I believe it was thousands of mid-range Pershing nuclear missiles into Europe and announced the, the development of the new MX missile, a, a nuclear cruise missile and all of these things. But then what happened was a few things. First of all, he saw the made for TV movie the day after and anyone can look up on YouTube and watch the opening scenes of the day after, which depicts essentially a thermonuclear war in the American Midwest. 
And for 1983 special effects, it's good enough. This is what it would look like to see America thermonuked. And the aftermath of that, with John Lithgow and Steve Gutenberg and everybody, it's a lot of fun. You love it. So that was one thing. Gave him nightmares. Freaked him out. The other thing was Helen Caldicott, an anti-nuclear activist from Australia. Uh, Reagan's daughter had convinced him to allow Helen Caldicott to come and give him a lecture on the danger, I guess, of nuclear fallout and that kind of thing. Nuclear winter. And then, so that was enough to freak Reagan out. And, and make him feel like something different had to be done. And right at that same time, Mikhail Gorbachev came to power. And the last of the old conservative 80-something-year-old Soviet commissars who had fought in World War II and all of that were all finally dead and gone. And here came this 41-year-old new dictator of the Soviet Union. And Reagan just immediately saw that he could just essentially pull alpha male kind of rank on this guy and just befriend him, walk right up to him. In fact, I forgot. I'm such a space cadet now, man. I can't remember my footnotes anymore. Someone just told me this, that where did I get this from? Damn it. Somebody told me this. I didn't read it. Somebody told me that the way that Reagan broke the ice with Gorbachev, he walked right up to him and said, you know, I think if the aliens attack, we're going to have to join forces. And Gorby was just like, what? (laughs) And then, so that was it. And it was like, ha ha, now I'm the boss of our friendship. Let's walk inside and negotiate things. And yeah. just, they immediately kind of became buddies and built a rapport there. And in 1986, at Reykjavik, they almost struck a deal to abolish nuclear weapons from the face of the earth. And Ronald Reagan at that time, Mr. Conservative, Mr. Republican, Mr. Anti-Communist, just like only Nixon can go to China, only Ronald Reagan could have possibly signed a deal to abolish nuclear weapons. The super patriot, right? The butcher of Nicaragua, right? Mm-hmm. And But the deal was this. We would reduce our nuclear stockpile and they would reduce their, and this is still the Soviet Union. This is two years before the wall even came down. This is 86. And the Soviet Union didn't cease to exist until Christmas Day 91. So at the time that we're talking about here in 86, everybody presumed the Soviet Union was going to last to the new century for all intents and purposes anyway. No one thought, oh, it's all unraveling right now or no one in power thought that. Um, But anyway, so the deal was presuming that the evil commie USSR, still not Russia, but the USSR would be our partner in this. We're going to reduce our stockpiles all the way down to about 200 each. And that would give us parity with China Britain, France, and Israel. At this time, you know, uh, Indian Pakistan didn't have nukes yet. North Korea didn't have nukes yet. And South Korea, I mean, pardon me, South Africa may have had a couple that they had developed with the Israelis. But anyway, but the point was, if the U.S. and, and Soviet Union could reduce down to 200, then we would have a new round of negotiations in concert with all of our friends and allies and with China and with everybody. And try to agree, let's see if we can cut them down to 100. And then let's see if we can cut them down to 50. And the ultimate goal would be, well, the 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 uh, immediate goal would be to get to a number of nuclear weapons where even in the case of a worst case scenario nuclear war, we would avoid nuclear winter. Let's get below the nuclear winter number of atom bombs in the world here where, you know, we're going to starve humanity to death. Um, and then let's see if we can get rid of them all. 
based on goodwill and based on real security guarantees and based on you know expanded inspections regimes so that everybody is happy that the other side is not cheating and this is not there were plans back in the day people talked about oh give all the nukes to the un and have a single monopoly on them in a world government something that's not what we're talking about here that was not what ronald reagan was talking about it was simply as he would always put it on other issues trust but verify in other words distrust yeah. but be polite right. about it right and and <laughs> yeah. and then you have your inspectors go in and listen the truth is that reagan signed the inf treaty in 87 and then bush senior signed I guess it was SALT 1 and 2 is what they were called. Or maybe it was maybe that was the original START, START 1 and START 2, that reduced nuclear stockpiles on both sides by the tens of thousands down to, you know, four-digit numbers, whereas before it had been, you know, uh, five digits on each side, where, you know, you know something like 50,000, 40,000 nukes on each side, something like that. Um, so and that lasted till 2019, right? The INF treaty, Trump got yes, rid of that. Which yep. then, yep. And that was Reagan's greatest achievement was the INF treaty. And what that did, that's the in intermediate nuclear forces treaty. And that kept that. In other words, remember I said that Reagan had built up all those medium range missiles, the Pershings and the MX, then he traded them right away again. Oh, and yep. this is the story. See, there's this horrible scumbag named Joe Serencioni, but he's got the scoop straight from George Schultz and George Schultz was in the room. And it was Reagan, Schultz, who was Secretary of State, the translator, and Gorbachev. And that's it. They're in Reykjavik, Iceland. And Gorbachev says, let's just sign a deal and get rid of all of the mid-range nuclear missiles. And Reagan says, okay, sure. So that's his whole hand that he had built up. He says, let's trade it away. That's exactly why he had built it up in the first place. So he could get the Russians to get rid of theirs and then we'll get rid of ours. He was perfectly happy to do that. He said, let's do that. Done. And then Gorbachev says, let's get rid of all of the nuclear missiles. In other words, all of the nuclear bombs, all of them. The strategic, mm -hmm. I mean, that would include the plane airdropped and whatever. That's what he was talking about. Let's just abolish nuclear weapons from the planet, Mr. Reagan. And Reagan said to Schultz, can we do that? And Schultz said, yes, Mr. President, we can do it, do it, let's do it. And they started working on the deal. And then, of course, you could probably guess what happened was a bunch of hawks led by Richard Pearl, one of the major ringleaders uh. who lied us into a war with Iraq 20 years ago, was then the assistant deputy secretary of defense for lying about crap in the Reagan administration. And he led kind of an internal push against this. And what they did was they manipulated Reagan's ignorance and emotions, essentially. They said, listen, you promised the American people you were gonna build this Star Wars program to shoot down incoming missiles. And the Soviets were insisting that if we're gonna abolish all the nukes, we gotta also abolish all the anti-missile systems. And Reagan essentially stuck to his ridiculous promise. I mean, if I promised you, Reed, that I was gonna put lasers in space to shoot down all the nuclear missiles, you could believe that just about as well as to believe that the Department of Defense was going to do that in the year 1986. And give me a break. The whole thing was a hoax. It was just a boondoggle. It always was. And by the way, if you just traded away all the nuclear missiles, then you don't need a missile defense system anyway, do you? You just need a sound verification system. You know, it's not like it's easy to 
spool up a brand new rocket program and weapons program where you had gotten rid of one before without getting caught, you know? And, but essentially they put it to Reagan like, oh, when, Mr. President, you'll be breaking your sworn promise to the American people that you promised them that you'll protect them. And he was like, oh, well, I can't ever do that. And so it was just because he was too dumb to think of it himself. And I don't know, I want to read George Schultz's memoirs on this or something. I don't know. Um, did the Secretary of State not argue that, Mr. Reagan, we don't need a missile shield if they don't have any damn missiles? <laughs> that seems like a pretty good argument that, look, if we make this deal, then it's a sound deal. We can do it. But they didn't. That's how it fell apart, was that it would have included not just getting rid of the missiles, but it would have included getting rid of the missile defense systems. And, you know, part of the argument was, oh, but there's still North Korea and they could get missiles and this kind of thing. China could have a rogue program. Someone could cheat. We got to have. And of course, the missile defense thing is virtually entirely a boondoggle. I mean, if you're willing mm -hmm. to spend a billion dollars per missile, maybe you could shoot them down. But nobody is willing to spend that much per, you know, for any kind of um, effective anti-missile system the only real way to shoot down incoming nukes is with outgoing nukes and you intercept them in space you know you're familiar with the neutron bomb mm -hmm. the soviets called it the capitalist bomb because they said it was high radiation so it would kill everyone but save all the factories and all of the materials so the evil capitalists could come and steal it all but the thing of it was that's really not what it was for the reason it was an enhanced radiation device, what that meant was it explodes more in radiation than in heat and light. And so it's designed to be detonated in space to take out the electronics of uh. the avionics of the incoming nukes. So, but that's not how our missile defense system works. It's not neutron bombs that we blast up there. Our missile defense system is you try to hit a bullet with a bullet going Mach 9 or whatever. And the only times they've ever made it work is when they had the interception point in the air or in, you know, uh, shallow space determined absolutely to the millisecond and to the space exactly where the missiles were supposed to meet up. They've never pulled off a real test. Of so it's not even going to be like 10% effective from what you're describing. It might hit like one of them or something if they shot them well, all at us in fact, I know a guy who's you know a missile leader i really should interview him in depth about this but essentially the idea is yeah they would have to be absolutely ready for it they would have to mm -hmm. know north korea is about to launch a rocket you've got 45 minutes to get everything set you know and then you launch everything you have at their one missile and hope that you get the wow but in any real surprise they'd be caught with their pants down. And even then, that's probably doubtful that they wow. would, and especially every time they've tested it, it's been a completely rigged test. Yeah, and that's opposite of how that's advertised, I feel. I mean, maybe I'm not just aware enough, but I feel like most people think it's pretty effective. I don't know, but... Yeah. I mean, even the way they sell it is that it would only be effective against Iran or North Korea if they fired one or two. Not that Iran has a rocket that could hit America at all. Right. North Korea does. Um but uh, it's still doubtful that they, in fact, I met another guy. I met, I know two guys. Well, I met one guy and I know another guy, but the first guy I met who was an expert on this, 
the way he told it to me was, look, I can shoot down incoming missiles. The question is how much you're willing to pay per shot I take because the technology that it takes to make this possible is just huge and expensive and and development intensive. You know what I mean? It's the hugest kind of project to try to bite off. So if you're willing to spend, you're willing to write a blank check for them to spend on developing a system to try to take out incoming missiles, then maybe they can. But it sure is not going to be like a snap of a fingers deal. But anyway, so I like to lead with the Reagan thing. It's important to lead with the Reagan thing because he's a Republican. If only Nixon can shake hands with Mao Zedong, then I guess only Reagan can shake hands with Gorbachev. And it's just too damn bad that they swung and missed at that because they really could have ended the Cold War or not just ended the Cold War, which they did. They ended the Cold War and they could have ended nuclear brinksmanship. And, and you know what? There's no reason to think, what the hell, Reed? Why should we presume that they could have ever got all the way down to zero? As I said, it was a phased plan anyway. But what mm-hmm. if we got down everybody's got 10 or 20? Yeah. You know? France and Britain and America, Russia, China, Israel. Well, I got 10 or 20. Don't anybody attack us. Is that not way, way, way yeah. more than enough? Yeah. But we can destroy all of the important cities in Russia and China in one day and vice versa. That's that's with one handful each. We should be fine. Ron Paul once said, we could defend this country with a couple of good submarines. And in fact, you know, one America, I forgot all the exact numbers, man. I won't give you exact ones, but you take all the Polaris missiles on one American nuclear sub. And they're multiple independently targetable re-entry vehicles that they have. One American sub could cause nuclear winter, could destroy all of the nation of Russia and starve the planet to death. Just one American sub. That's, Ron Paul said, a couple of good submarines. One good submarine is enough to hold the whole world hostage. All of it. So all of the rest of this is just completely superfluous. It's just, you know, if, and, and look, I mean, I'm not a hippie and a dreamer. Like the reality is I can see, I can certainly sympathize with the position that no way, man, we got to hang on to one dozen at least forever for our security's sake or some, some continent is going to rise out of the Pacific, I guess, with a brand new power on it. That's capable of trying to take us on. I don't know where the hell that gets supposed to come from maybe the dark side of Mars, uh, they're going to come. And so we got to have some H-bombs. Fine. But let's have so few that if we do end up using them, we don't end up putting so much soot in the atmosphere that all the crops fail and a billion right. people starve. And look, if I say nuclear winter and you picture like a blizzard in July, that's unnecessary, man. All we're talking about is global temperatures being reduced by two or three or four or five degrees. That's enough to starve humanity to death in a year or two or three by the billions and billions and billions and billions. Yep. Yeah, man. Um, I want to look forward to reading the book, but anyone who hasn't read the book yet and just wants like a terrifying 
little snippet of exposition i researched the castle bravo explosion recently which was in i think 1954 the largest h-bomb the united states ever detonated and it was 15 megatons so a thousand times as big as the one dropped on hiroshima and <laughs> it was two and a half times the size they thought it was going to be and they had to evacuate the nearby islands and tons of people got radiation sickness and died and um yeah. then like you were saying all the how close we've come to war so many times. Who was the one Russian dude who just didn't press the button when oh, he was I asked? I can't remember their names, but there's a few of those. Yeah. Absolutely. And look for people who, uh, let's just go through real quick about nukes. Um, you know, for people who aren't familiar with this, I guess, you know, people have heard of the atomic bomb tests in Nevada and obviously the nuking of Japan. Right. Um, and then also of the thermonuclear tests in the Pacific. So first of all, Virtually all atom bombs in the world are plutonium bombs. You can set one off of highly enriched uranium, uh, you know, at least 85% enriched, maybe, maybe certainly above 80, but usually above 90% enriched uranium uh, 235 to set off a uranium bomb. Um, but almost all, uh, and then what you're talking about there is an extremely heavy radioactive metal. And by causing an implosion, essentially, explosions forcing the material at high velocity into itself causes the atoms to split and once you have fission then that releases all you know uh neutrons and whatever the hell go bouncing around and causes a chain reaction and ends up splitting all of these heavy radioactive metal atoms in half and then that's where the energy for the explosion comes from Okay, it's nuclear fission. It's, it's splitting atoms. Okay, but then you have what's called the super, the H bombs, thermonuclear bombs. And this is what you see, as you just mentioned, in the Pacific test. We didn't test those things in Nevada. Right. They test those way out in the Pacific Ocean. And sorry for the natives who got to lose their islands, but that's tough luck for them. That's where the bikini comes from. They took that name from the bikini atoll where the Americans obliterated it. Um, and then what's happening there is, remembering Back to the Future 2, maybe this is an outdated reference now, but that's a classic, right? I've seen it, yeah. In the back of the DeLorean, they've got Mr. Fusion, and mm -hmm. he just puts banana peels and beer and a bunch of crap in there, and it's free energy, right? So what they're talking about there is taking atoms and combining them together and then getting this abundance of energy out of that. It's enough to power your flying car or even go back in time or whatever you want, okay? Well, we don't have that. That's fantasy from science fiction. That's cold fusion. And you've probably heard your whole life that there are scientists working hard on trying to figure out a way to achieve cold fusion because that would be free energy forever for everyone as much as you could possibly want if you can find a way to fuse atoms together at room temperature. The problem is in order to make it possible to fuse atoms together, you got to make it hotter than the sun. You need it to be in the tens of thousands of degrees Kelvin. Then, so what that means then is the plutonium bomb like they used on Nagasaki, that is the blasting cap. That's the percussion cap for setting off a thermonuclear bomb. That atom bomb makes it hotter than the sun. Now that makes it possible for them to fuse 
hydrogen. Now we're not talking about heavy metals. Now we're talking about the lightest atoms of all hydrogen, although they're isotopes of hydrogen, but still extremely light atoms. And now we are fusing these atoms together. And that's where you get into the megaton range or into the tens and hundreds of kilotons. Um, and so, uh, and then, so people want to go and look on YouTube and see all the Pacific tests. You can see there's a lot of them. And in fact, not, not all of them are on YouTube, but if you just Google around, um, on the different sites, um, you know, search at dot mill and dot gov for nuclear tests, things like that. Um, and there's just tons of pictures and tons of footage that they took of all the different uh, thermonuclear tests in the Pacific. And you can see, it's just incredible to see. You know, one thing about nukes, Reed, I think is people always see the explosion and it's such an iconic mushroom cloud and the ring around it and all this stuff. But at the same time, it's like, who are you killing with that? A bunch of birds? It's mm -hmm. a clear blue sky. So if you show me like a really tall explosion, I'm not exactly sure why I care about that. Right. Right. But that's the thing is like that big mushroom cloud is distracting you from what's taking place down on the ground. Yeah. And, you know, there's one of these at, at the dot mill site. It was. I think it might have been the Arapahoe test. One of these. It's just huge mushroom cloud. And. Um, it's pretty impressive. You look at it, man, that's a God dang. Look at that thing. And then you follow it down to the ground and you see now when you, once you can see the ground, now you can see the scale. Yeah. And you realize how actually how big that thing is. Holy crap. It's beyond imagination, man. That's absolutely something else. And it's, it's funny. A guy was just tweeting to me that I'm such a fear monger because everybody knows that there's no such thing as nuclear weapons at all <laughs> and that the whole thing yeah. is just a hoax to make us afraid and enslave us and i just thought man what a relief isn't that great news yeah. <laughs> i just know that that ain't true man i know yeah. a guy who used to test these things right you know gordon prather who used to write for antiwar.com he worked at the sandia national laboratory he was a nuclear weapons tester man he could tell you every bit of this stuff and um in fact, I, I followed that guy's links and the proof is, come on, dude, duh, like that's totally stupid. And then they got no argument whatsoever. It's completely ridiculous, of course. But um, it goes to show, though, that, you know, so much authoritative knowledge in our society is such lies that people really are lost in the dark and they really don't know what's true or not. They don't know whether even there's such a thing possible as nuclear fission and fusion. And whether, and they don't know whether an American government would really commit to such a project or not. When the truth is, the, the very sad truth is, yeah, they did and they succeeded. And these things have proliferated around the world now. And, yeah. and as you said, as, as we mentioned before, there have been a hell of a lot of close calls where, yeah. you know, on one case, the Norwegians launched a rocket and they called the Russians. This is like a 93 USSR gone. They call the Russians. They're like, hey, guys, we're launching a rocket. Don't flip out or anything. And the Russians are like, okay, man, copy that. All good. But then it got lost in the bureaucracy and the word did not get passed through the chain of command. So then the Norwegians launched their satellite and you had half the military in Moscow thought that it was a nuclear first strike and panicked. 
red lights flashing, dudes sweating and yelling at each other. You know, tensions high. Yeah. One, one. And then cooler heads prevailed. And somebody said, no, 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 no. The Americans aren't first striking us from Norway right now. Everybody cool it and saved our ass. Yeah. But, and, you know, one of these stories was the Russian computer just got it wrong. And the computer had been acting up. And so the colonel was like, nah, you know what? His order, his standing orders were absolutely, he was 100% mandated to notify his superiors of that he got this alert. And he was just like, no, I refuse to do my job because I know those idiots, they'll just pull the trigger. They're not deep enough dudes to go, wait a minute, let's make sure the computer is right here. They're the kind of guys who, that's why they have that job, is once the light turns red for them, they go for it. And so this one guy disobeyed his orders and just said, no, I guess I'm going to sit here and see if I get nuked or not. (laughs) And then he didn't. And then, you know, the Americans one time thought that, um, as, as, as I read it, it was just like that scene out of, um, uh, Matthew Broderick war games where they show you inside the Cheyenne mountain and it's all the computer screens and all the air force colonels and whatever. And, and it's just in all the map, here they come. H bombs coming over the poles. Holy crap. Here it is. ICBM day end of the world. And everybody panics. They're like calling the president. Everybody's flipping out. And after like a lot of time, 15 minutes had passed or something before somebody figured out that no dummy, the training card is in the wrong computer slot. Yeah. I'm I'm an atheist government program. It's a government program to sit on these machines, thousands of these machines that can kill an entire metropolis at a time. Yeah. That's just crazy. Yeah, I'm an atheist like you, but uh, when you hear these stories, it makes me second guess it sometimes. <laughs> like yeah, the fact thank that we. You, baby have been Jesus, or whoever did that. You know, yeah. yeah. No kidding. I got a clip here. Uh, I, I think this is actually, you've probably seen this one, but this is a smaller bomb going off, but you have the ships on the ocean to kind of give it some scale, but they detonated this one, I think 90 feet underwater. This was in 1946, but it just gives you an idea of mm-hmm. how huge yeah. these things are. Um, and I think it yeah, shows an aerial view bomb there. That's probably a plutonium implosion. Yeah. Bomb. And just the, uh, let's see it. Yeah. So right here, I should get, we get an aerial view coming up too. But I mean, this is so they're a thousand times as big now. <laughs> but I mean, look at that scale. That's just insane. Uh, this is just one year after Hiroshima. But yeah, yeah, go look, check I'm out. The, the, I'm not the world's greatest expert on this, but I think it's essentially it's fair to say that if you dropped a couple of megaton bomb on, say, Hollywood, that you would kill everybody from the ocean to downtown L.A. and down to Compton and up to the mountains. Yeah. You just the LA basin would be dead. It's maybe two, one or two megaton bombs dropped there, and you're talking about total decimation. Everything yeah. south of the valley down to Manhattan Beach or whatever. Yeah. Just and yeah. So anyway, but um we're now fighting a proxy war with Russia on their western border. Yeah, I was going to say, on that positive note, let's get into how close we're getting to (laughs) getting one of these things shot off. So, Oh, by the way, uh, in the book, we go over Iraq and Iran and Israel and North Korea and India and Pakistan and all their 
uh, yeah, we do a bit on India and Pakistan too. Um, so we have all the rogue states and all their nuclear programs and all that. And speaking of nuclear winter, the, you know, the, the exercises show that even a limited nuclear war between India and Pakistan, if China and America and everybody else stayed out, would still lead to nuclear winter and the death of billions. Even just a limited, and I guess the Indians have H-bombs. I don't know if the Pakistanis have H-bombs yet, but it would, you know, essentially what it is, is it's the forest fires and the city fires just burning uncontrolled. And then it's just that total amount of soot getting up into the stratosphere where it's above the clouds. It can't get rained out of the sky. It just takes years and years and years, maybe decades to finally just from gravity filter back down. But of course you got the winds and everything up there to keep it up there. And, you know, we see this with the volcanoes. You have a huge volcano go off here or there and you do have global cooling effects and you do have a this, that, but now we're talking hundred volcanoes going off at once. Right. And then, and nobody putting the fire out, right? Talking about all of Pakistan on fire. Okay. That'll block out the sun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, speaking of all this, like you mentioned, we've got this proxy war going on with Russia. What, before we get into specifics about um, what we've done lately with putting the 101st airborne into Romania and stuff, what, what is going on there? Because it's, if you don't read, you know, antiwar.com or the Ron Paul Institute or something, people are getting all sorts of mixed messages about who's strategically winning, what they're trying to do. So what are things like over there right now? Are the Russians maintaining most of their objective? Are they really being pushed back hard by the Ukrainians? What what's taking place? I think there's a lot of truth on all sides of those claims, frankly. The the Russians, first of all, only sent in about a fourth of their army. And they sent them in from, I think, four or five different directions. And that did not work that well. You know, um, they, you know, made major gains for a while. Quite importantly, they've seized all of, essentially, I guess, all of the Donetsk Oblast, which is the southernmost. It's the Donbass in the far east. There is Donetsk and Luhansk. Luhansk is in the north. And you know, again, we're talking the Far East, but the Northern one and Donetsk is the Southern one. And they've seized all of essentially greater Donetsk, including Mariupol, all the way to the Crimean Peninsula, secured those freshwater sources. And they've seized the city of Kherson, which is sort of like the New Orleans of the Dnieper River. It's the last major port city there on the Southern Dnieper River. And um, there's been essentially when you heard about in mid-September, that the Ukrainians had made major gains against the Russians. What had happened was a two-pronged strategy, a feint type strategy. They started building up and attacking down in Kherson, which is again, northwest of the Crimean Peninsula there, between Crimea and Odessa on the, the southwestern part of Ukraine's coast now, okay? Um, but that was the feint because what they were really doing was luring the Russians away from Luhansk in the far northeast um, in order to reinforce Kherson. And then they made a lightning strike into uh, Luhansk. So they took the city of Kharkiv and all the area around there, and it essentially took the entire half of the northern Luhansk uh, province there. The Russians had essentially just left military police and SWAT team type forces there and i guess 
they had American satellites and intelligence and could see that behind this pretty thin line, there's not much. And they had an opportunity. And so they took it. But then the reaction to that was Vladimir Putin called up 300,000 reserves, which means that all of the active duty army essentially is now available for duty in Ukraine because the reserves are going to be filling their places everywhere else, say the border with China or Finland or wherever their usual stations are, right? So now they're building up this huge force. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel L. Davis is one of the greatest experts on this. And he told me they're building up a massive force. We could see all their fuel resources and all of their uh, armored resources that they're building up inside Russia now. And they're waiting for the ground to freeze. Because, see, in, and in fact, they might have launched their war this time last year if they were smart, never mind moral. But just from a strategic point of view, when the ground is all soggy, then you got to stick to the roads. Mm-hmm. But when the ground is frozen solid, now the tanks have the run of the place and can go where they want and have a huge advantage or at least an increased advantage versus the defenders there. And so um, you have essentially an extremely powerful and getting more powerful offensive conventional force being prepared by the Russians to come in. At the same time, on the other side, you have a massive influx of weapons from the United States and other NATO countries, and you do have training going on, whereas the months drag on, you have at least hundreds, maybe thousands of Ukrainians who've gone to Poland and to Germany to be trained on some of these more high-tech artillery pieces and things like that. And there's certainly plenty of anecdotal evidence that says that that's really helped turn the tide on the battlefield in certain cases, where before the Russians had the Ukrainians just completely overmatched with quantity of artillery now we give them these high mars and they're able to target the russians from further away and protect themselves and have more successes on the battlefield and the americans are giving them a lot of intelligence for targeting top officers help them sink the um it was a 25 30 year old ship but the um uh i'm sorry the name escapes me but the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet uh, that they sank. Um, so they have, and according to the New York Times and the Intercept, um, we have CIA and Special Operations Forces on the ground in Ukraine uh, helping to coordinate the war. We have essentially the Pentagon, the, the whole American military is dedicated to helping coordinate and run the war for the Ukrainians. And they're absolutely co-belligerents in all, but I mean, under the law they are, and actually they are, but they just don't call it that. But they're, you know, intervening in the war to a great degree. And I'm certain that has helped them to a great degree against the Russians. But so then we have a real problem because the Americans have admitted, man, this was a couple of weeks ago in the Washington Post, maybe three weeks ago. They just buried the lead in the middle of the article. And they go, yeah, well, you know, administration officials say that they know that Ukraine can't really win here no matter what. Mm-hmm. So either russia is going to win or we're going to negotiate a settlement eventually and i guess they're trying to they want the ukrainians to be in a position of a little bit greater strength um before they negotiate it may be too late now they could have had a deal before the war and they could have had a deal in april the americans told them not to enter it and so they didn't and so now it looks like they're losing 
not just the Donbass, but also Zaporozhia and Kherson regions uh, you know, permanently now, uh, probably. Um, and, and, and yet, see, the American declared policy is whatever it takes, as long as it takes mm -hmm. to liberate all of Ukraine from Russian forces, they must suffer a total defeat and be completely driven out and Crimea too. Yeah. Whoa, come on, man. What are you doing? When <clears throat> they know that they can't achieve that, they admit that they know that they cannot achieve that. And they know really that they don't care about Ukraine. You know, this is essentially a side issue. Ukraine is a cudgel to what Russia with is what it is. They don't have it invested for the people of Ukraine. They're not willing to put American soldiers on the ground to fight in this thing as well. They should not, but they don't pretend that Ukraine would be worth it. Now look, if the Russians were rolling across Poland into Germany, America would fight. There's mm -hmm. no question. In fact, I don't think there's any question. They probably would fight for Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia right now. They are NATO members. And I think that if Russia hypothetically were to attack the Baltics, I think Biden would dump the entire goddamn Marine Corps in there to try to drive them back out again. But to try to push that issue in Ukraine, when everybody told them all along, everybody told them all along, all of their own best, worst experts told them all along that the Russians just will not tolerate America bringing Ukraine into our military alliance like this. Could have given them neutrality and just left it at that and it would have been fine. And so um, they know they have known all along that this is of the absolute utmost importance to the Russians. The only country more important to Russia is Belarus, which America has also tried to overthrow in two different coup d'etats in 2021 and before that in 2005 um, and failed both times. But imagine how the Russians took that. Um, in fact, Lyle Goldstein, who was formerly at the Naval War College, told me, I asked him, Look, Putin could have done this anytime since 2014. So why now? And he says, oh, I think it was the last coup attempt in Belarus. Right. They tried that in 21. They said, or maybe that was in 20. I'm sorry, man. I That could have been under Trump still. Um, but I think it was 20. Remember, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the one where the husband was under arrest and they were trying to promote the wife um, for a little while and all that. Anyway, he said that was what it was when and that it wasn't just Putin. It was all of, all of Moscow, the entire national security establishment in Russia said, that's it. We have got to draw a line here in Ukraine. The Americans are just relentless. They won't stop. They'll even try again to overthrow our friends in Belarus. And there's no way we're going to tolerate that. And so, again, I hope people understand when I'm talking about this. This is, as the academics say, descriptive and not normative here. Right. I'm not saying that Russia as a nation state has a right to dominate Belarus. Right. I'm just saying that's the way the world is. And what right. do you think that Russia is going to do if you try to take Belarus away from them? They're sure, going to yeah. do something nasty, man. It doesn't any, you know, it's no different than explaining why Osama hit the towers. He was trying to he hated America for backing the dictatorship in Saudi, for bombing Iraq and supporting Israel. And he was trying to lure us into invading Afghanistan. And it worked. 
because people are dumb and people don't want to listen to people like me who say this is why they're doing it and you're doing the wrong thing by your own standard um, right or for some here. people Putin some people Putin bin laden right i don't yeah. why, you know osama bin putin why do i love him i don't care about him yeah i don't care what happens to him i'm in a texan i'm not right. taking his side i'm just telling you read if you go up and smack that guy he's gonna at least try to do one of his judo thingies on you because <laughs> that's how it works yeah you know Simple yeah or it's like, like the the cuban missile crisis how did we react you know like we weren't okay with missiles being in cuba so we weren't just going to take that lying down so why would any other country be okay with us amassing troops and screwing with their governments right on their border and look reed i'm writing a book about this now so you know if you read fool's Aaron, you kind of know how it goes i just collect footnotes like hot wheels cars man i got <laughs> i got nothing but Claim after claim after claim after claim after claim of Americans, first of all, telling their bosses so, and then secondly, saying, I told them so for 30 years. Everybody knew this was going to happen. That's exactly what they knew was going to happen. I got EU lady in 2004 going, oh, I hope Ukraine just doesn't even ask. We don't want it to even come up because, man, the Russians would freak out if we did that. You know what I mean? Like, we, there's a million of them. There's a million of them because, um, because that's how obvious and and crazy it is that we would try to bring Ukraine into NATO, as as Putin said in his declaration of war. Again, not justifying it, but just explaining this is what was going on. He said, "Well, we tried to let Ukraine just be independent, right? But that wasn't good enough for the Americans. The Americans had to try to make a colony out of the thing, and they did." And then look who rules Kiev right now. It's not an independent state. It's an American sock puppet state. And so then his reasoning was, if Ukraine has got to be dominated by either the USA or Russia, it's going to be Russia. Right. Because screw you. Which is, of course, you know. And look, I found this one. People can find this at Yahoo News if you want. The CIA agents. Um telling Zach Dorfman, you're so familiar, I'm sure, Reed, with all their arguments that, well, what we're trying to do, see, is we're pouring in all these weapons to Ukraine, carefully calibrated. New York Times says that, Rand Corporation says that, over and over you find the CIA. People type that in, Ukraine weapons, calibrate and calibrated, and see what you find. You find it over and over again. We're carefully calibrating the amount of weapons we're pouring in, see, to deter Russia from invading. But we're trying to not put in so many weapons that it provokes them into invading, right? Well, so my argument was either one, they're deliberately calibrating it to provoke an invasion and they're just lying, or two, they really suck at calibrating weapons quantities <laughs> in order to modify Vladimir Putin's behavior. Right. He's not a Labrador. And apparently their training has failed. Right. But then here are these CIA officers telling Zach Dorfman at Yahoo News. Yeah, see, we told them we told them the calibration thing doesn't work at all, man. The calibration thing, you got it exactly backwards. You know what we're doing? We're provoking them into invading, but we're not deterring them from invading. And then guess what? 
my bosses, boy, they made the bad decision and kept doing it anyway, but it's not my fault because I'm the one who told them that that was what was going to happen, of course. And even Fiona Hill, who you know as the hawk who testified against Trump during his impeachment and all that, the British lady, she has a huge thing. And she's on the record multiple times on this. She wrote about it in her book. And there's a New York Times article, uh, like a news story about it. But there's also like a profile of her or something from the New York Times Weekend Magazine or something that begins with her telling the entire anecdote about how she personally conveyed the CIA and all of the experts' warnings to George W. Bush and Dick Cheney in 2008. We should not try to bring Ukraine into NATO. It's going to unnecessarily provoke a conflict with Russia. It's really dangerous, and I really mean it. And the way she tells the story, Dick Cheney said, oh, when? You don't believe in democracy? And he grabbed his notebooks and walked out of the room. And then Bush said, ah, don't worry. He's just jerking your chain. I'm listening. Go ahead, lady. And then she says, listen, you shouldn't do this. You're going to really provoke Russia. And that's why the Germans and French don't want you to do it, too. And then Bush, of course, I hate that guy so goddamn much, Reed. Bush, of course, changes the subject to Germany and France and says, oh, well, I like a diplomatic challenge and I'll see if I can get them on board. In other words, he's no longer answering or considering the question right. at all of Russia's reaction to his behavior. It's just a question of whether he can put Angela Merkel under his thumb or whether he can't. And of course he couldn't. So then what happened at the uh, Budapest uh, summit in, 2000, in April of 2008, Bush could not get Germany and France on board. They vetoed it for one reason and one reason only. It would be an unnecessary provocation against Russia. So then Bush just came out anyway and said, oh, yeah, well, we're putting them on an action plan for eventual NATO membership. And we're going to start doing everything we can to bring Ukraine into Georgia and, and Georgia into NATO uh, on the slow track, um, you know, beginning now. Which is the same damn difference in terms of the level of provocation there. And uh, and then to hear Hill tell it, yeah, see, I warned him, Bush's fault. Yeah. You know what? I mentioned William Perry, Bill, uh, Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, who's anti-nuclear weapons now. Well, in his book, he blames himself for not resigning over NATO expansion. And he says, some people might say that our deteriorating relationship with Russia would have happened anyway, but I'm not willing to accept that. In other words, meaning anyway, meaning even if he had resigned in protest over it. And in other words, he is saying, it's all my fault. If only I had been strong enough in standing up to Bill Clinton on this and prevented him from doing this, then we would still have a positive working relationship with Russia. And some might say, it's not my fault, but I know it is, right? Like old uh, Jimmy, what's his name? Um, Jimmy Buffett singing a song. My own damn fault. That's William Perry. You know? And yeah. so, yeah. Well, let's see. If William Perry says it was Bill Clinton's fault and his fault, and if Fiona Hill says it was George W. Bush's fault, and we all know that Barack Obama screwed the Russians on Libya and on, remember the hot mic moment? 
Dmitry, tell Vladimir, as soon as I'm reelected, I'll start dismantling the anti-missile missile systems in Poland and Romania. Didn't do that. Instead, overthrew the government, caught red-handed, overthrowing the government in Ukraine in 2014 and starting this war. So, sounds like I already won the argument about whose GD fault this is, man. It's America's fault, the U.S. government's fault. It's Bill Clinton's fault and George W. Bush's fault and Barack Obama's fault and, for that matter, Donald Trump's fault. They accused him of treason with Russia, and how did he prove his innocence? By pouring billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine, carefully calibrated to provoke a war. And here we yep. are, you know? So are you optimistic at all that if the the House and Senate switch the Republicans, that anything's going to change? I know no. well, I, I, I could just speak for our senator race here in New Hampshire. I don't know if you've seen the clips of the Republican guy yep. who's running. I saw but you trolling him good. too, and good for you on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but unfortunately, what I hear from a lot of the Republicans is the reason Putin invaded is because we weren't showing enough strength. And... I try to like meet them somewhere. So I'll be like, all right, well, strength would mean like going and talking to Putin and like trying to work something out. Right. That's what you mean by strength. And they're like, well, yeah. And then like Mike Pompeo, you know, threatening to blow people up if they don't do what we want. And I'm just like, oh, like, no, guys, like I, I try to tell people like I liked Donald Trump going and sitting down with Kim Jong Un. I like that he talked to Putin. And that's what's, you know, I'm trying to tell him that's what's wrong with Biden, that he's not willing to negotiate anything. He's not willing to talk with any of these guys, but they still believe this peace through strength thing and they can't they can't shake yeah. it. I mean, look, I, I swear to God, you sound exactly like me complaining to Doug McGregor a minute ago <laughs> um, that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're a Republican, then the narrative is Democrats are all a bunch of women and all a bunch of weaklings. And everybody who's a tough guy and macho and heterosexual is a Republican and a war hawk. And so, and then the Democrats narrative is, no, -uh. look at how muscular our foreign policy is. Look at what tough guys we try to pretend to be. So we, you know, pale a little bit less in comparison to you alpha dogs over there in the GOP. And then that's it. And meanwhile, what you just said is the obvious narrative. Joe Biden is senile and reckless and insane and wasteful and, and unnecessarily provocative. How about let's be conservative yeah. and cautious about our relationship with Russia instead of being some world revolutionary on some ideological bent trying to I mean, look at how far our Kiev is from Moscow, dude. It's 300 miles due south. You know, this is 7,000 miles east yeah. of where you are, and you're about 1,000 miles. Well, you're at least 2,000 miles east, east from me. you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So listen, I mean, this is just, it couldn't possibly be right. I remember in 2008, I debated a neocon. It was right after the Georgia War, right before the election when Obama beat McCain. It was right after the Georgia war. And I'm talking about, he's going, oh yeah, no, we have this global Navy so we can help people when there's an earthquake and all this stuff. And I'm going, no man, we have a Navy because America is the world empire. And those are our star destroyers. And when your planet gets out of line, we pull them into your orbit and let you know 
We can either do this the easy way or the hard way and all this and that and whatever. And the guy's like, yeah, right. Whatever. America's an empire. I've never heard such an absurd thing in my life. This, that. And then I forgot the transition. But the next subject is America has a border dispute with Russia in the Southern Caucasus Mountains. Now, the neocon I was debating, Harvey Kushner, probably couldn't have found South Ossetia on a map. And here he's talking about how America owes it to the people of Georgia to help them reconquer South Ossetia, to keep it out of the hands of that grubby Russian empire or, them, you know, them evil Russians. And I told him, I go, oh, yeah, no, America's not a world empire, but we have a border dispute with Russia in the land between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea on the far side of the planet from here. But, oh, no, that's the liberal rules-based world order that has nothing to do with American violent domination by force of other people. The whole thing is just, you have to be willing to just lie right to your own self in the mirror to continue believing in this crap at this point. But anyway, back to your point, though, about the narratives there, then. You know, America first means you're a tough guy on China instead of Russia. Yeah, thanks yeah. a lot. You know what I mean? I hate it wrong because that's what Israel wants. That's America first. And then truly the answer is read. Yes, I've seen this my whole life. And there are good right wingers. And look, every time there's an election and people get let down and betrayed, they start coming more toward the libertarian way and start seeing through these things. But throughout the 1990s, man, it wasn't just Bill Clinton. It was the ATF, the FBI, the IRS, the bombing of Iraq and the Gulf War illness and all of these things, man, the anti-government right wing in America at that time was a thing. Even after mm -hmm. Oklahoma bombing, they blamed it on every white guy with a gun did it, except the actual Nazis who did it. They all got away with it. But every other American to the on the right was indicted for that. But even then, it's still, it was this huge anti-government sentiment build up during that time. And then here comes Lewinsky. Oh yeah, guess what? You know what's really wrong with America? Bill Clinton is childish in his sexual antics. And all we need now is the adults in the form of George Bush Jr. The adults. <laughs> Dick Cheney, who owes Halliburton a few billion dollars. <laughs> and a bunch of Israeli spies, essentially, from the neoconservative movement. Yeah, these are the adults who are now going to take. And then what do they do, Reed? The anti-government right, who, man, the if you had heard the panic attacks over Bill Clinton using the FBI and the IRS to investigate his enemies, you might have thought they wanted to abolish the IRS and the FBI. Oh, right. no. <laughs> They're discontent at the ATF for getting all those Branch Davidians killed. Nah, ATF, we need them to collect taxes for us. That's the true conservative position. And then what happened was... The American right, the Republican voters of America, they submitted their will to the worst people to hold power since at least Harry Truman. George W. Bush, the absolute incompetent, cross-eyed idiot, short-sighted, narrow-minded, cruel, spoiled, rotten, little piece of shit. And they went, oh, well, if George Bush 
wants me and everyone at my church to support torturing people to death in the name of stopping them scary satanic Islamics coming at me, then whatever you say, sir, <laughs> yes, sir. Mm -hmm. And it took them until the year 2016, Reed, 16. When Donald Trump told them, no, you stupid, we don't believe that anymore. And they went, oh, we don't believe that anymore. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's the same thing that happens to the liberals. Oh, they were so upset about Bush and his war in Iraq. Then it wasn't even Obama, Mr. Bright, shiny smile and the charming thing. It was just Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats won the House in 06. And that was enough to get every liberal to shut the hell up about the war for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And then when Obama came, it was just like taking what they had ever said and burying it six feet under the ground. You know, and then Trump was so bad that the state itself, especially the national security state in the form of the FBI counterintelligence division and CIA framed him for treason, framed him for essentially the ultimate in anti-patriotism serving Russia uh, at America's expense. So then what did all the liberals do? They rallied around the national security state. They never heard of Jagger Hoover and COINTELPRO or any of that. Or if they had, they probably rethinking it now and thinking COINTELPRO is probably a really good idea to go after the anti-war left. I mean, liberals have just been turned into absolute monsters through partisan politics, right? Mm -hmm. And then, so you look at how now the right-wingers, they kind of got better on some things. I mean, God, all the anti-Muslim crap in the Obama years is just unforgivable, but they got better on a lot of anti-government sentiment in the Obama years. And then mm -hmm. during Trump, the whole government was still against them. They weren't the dominant force in the country, even with their guy in the chair. And so they got even more radicalized against the FBI and the CIA and even the military then, um, because they could see how the military was thwarting Donald Trump. See Joe Kent, who you know rails about how literally his wife was killed in Syria after Donald Trump ordered her out and the military countermanded his orders and kept her there. Yep. Right. Um, and, uh, and then yet, if you go, oh, no, the yellow peril. Look at how red their flag is with the yellow stars and the dangerous words they say that you can't understand. I guess they're about to build 10,000 troop ships and cross the Pacific Ocean and invade and take California away from us. And if you're a right winger, forget all that stuff about being anti-government. Yeah. You love the U.S. government. You love them so much. You love them no matter what they do to you. You love them more for what they do to you as long as they promise to intervene against China, even with, uh, to paraphrase uh, Buckley, even with Biden at the reins of it all, yeah. you're willing to support a totalitarian government on our shores to protect you from, oh, the bet. Oh, you know what? Israel told me for the thousandth time in 25 years that I'm supposed to be afraid of the Ayatollah of Iran. Now, I can't think of a damn thing he's done to me since 1983 when Ronald Reagan sold him missiles a year after that. But Israel says in at the end of 2022, I'm supposed to be upset with Iran. America first. I mean, Jerusalem 
decides for America first. Huh? Yeah. And Scott, they, it's it's so funny that in this it's it's frustrating as hell, man. It really is. It's so funny you know? that you said Joe Kent because I actually had his website pulled up ready to talk about the America First movement. But yeah. you know, if you read I'm like to get a, him on the show now, I just I just told my guy today, see if you can get him on the show because I heard okay. him say some horrible things that made me mad, but I've heard him say some really good stuff. He's better than Balduck, I know that. But like, yeah. I, I really hope that there's potential there because a guy like him could be such an important leader of the anti-war right in the government. But I see the headline yeah. there. So yeah, the well, bad news. I, I guess you don't, I mean, if you don't want to trash him too much before he comes go on for it. Show, No, go ahead, man. Truth uh, is so, I mean, the last two sentences, the last two sentences of his foreign policy sound okay. Uh, like, to fortify our key alliances, we must not lead our allies on foolish nation-building endeavors as we have done in Afghanistan for nearly 20 years, and we should only ask that our allies go to war when it's absolutely necessary. So if you just saw those two sentences, looks great. But then you go back here, uh, and he says, we must build a strong coalition of nations against the CCP's aggressive practices abroad and their genocide and human rights abuses against their own people. I will push to offensively use tariffs against Chinese imports and sanction China for its numerous human rights violations, I will push our diplomats to make alliances in the Pacific against the CCP. I strongly support President Trump's tariffs, barring of Chinese technology and cracking down on the CCP's infiltration of the U.S. industry, their uh, think tanks and universities. And then even like, I mean, I, I know right wingers are going to suck on China, but here he says, I strongly support the historic accomplishments of the Abraham Accords in the Middle East. We must strengthen our NATO alliance and ensure that NATO shoulders its share of the security burden and does not support Russia by purchasing Think. Russian oil gas. In like, other dude. words, yeah, Bill Clinton is gone. All hail George W. Bush. And yeah, in other words, like... doesn't mean anything at all. America first means nothing. Yeah, I mean, those last two sentences... He just, I mean, he destroys everything he says in those last two sentences with these other two paragraphs. It's, and this is what's crazy to me is people can call themselves anti war now and get away with all that bullshit. Like people will be like, oh, you're against a war that happened or started 20 years ago. Good enough. And you're for escalating all the ones that are coming down the pipe. I just don't get it. But yeah, it's tragic. And it's, I mean, frankly, it's cowardly, right? You can't just get up there and say, come on, China ain't doing nothing to us. Shut up. Oh, no, it's popular on the right. You got to be a China hawk. Let's just, you know, why not lead? Yeah. And and it's just obvious nonsense. You know what I mean? The idea that China is, what, a threat to South Korea, Japan, Australia, even Vietnam, which is the Vietnamese commie government that defeated America there. Would we go to war to protect Vietnam from invasion by China right now? I mean, this the whole thing is nuts, dude. Um, and the fact of the matter is, I mean, Americans can't even find China on a map. And it's like fully a quarter of Eurasia. Much less they can find Taiwan. You know, you want to do a trade war, a full diplomatic and trade war with China? That's going to lead to war. America's trade relationship with China is one of the greatest inventions in the history of peace. Are you kidding me? This was Nixon's greatest invention. It's the best thing he ever did in his entire sorry life. Was he went over there and he shook hands with 
you know, quantitatively the worst human who ever lived, Mao Zedong. Mm -hmm. And he goes, look, I'd rather you come with me than with the USSR. And Mao said, okay, deal. And we had 50 years of peace and, and open relationships and, you know, pretty much 30 years of trade. And it's the greatest increase of the standard of living of the most people in the history of the world in the shortest amount of time in the history of the world. And people want to pretend like what their entire economy is rigged toward building an offensive military capacity to take over the world, including North America or some kind of fantasy. This is just comic book crap. This is like saying America has to attack a rock to prevent them from attacking us first. No, that's a stupid lie. And if you believe that you're a sucker, you're just letting your is it's not really rape if you allow it that you're being completely deceived and and essentially knowingly so the whole thing is a joke i mean look at china it's one of the poorest countries in the world it's a desperately poor country it's already an overextended empire inside it's what we call chinese borders right now nobody thinks like, what's honestly the worst case scenario? Are they going to take back Taiwan that's been part of China since the 1600s, which is not a foreign nation, which is not Japan or Korea? Other than that, maybe what? Outer Mongolia? Nobody thinks that they're about to invade Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and Thailand, and Bhutan. If they get in a fight with India, it'll be over badly agreed upon borders in the Himalayas. Well, but not one side trying to invade and conquer and occupy the other in any way. Nobody believes that. Nobody believes that China's building a naval force to try to take over the planet to supplant America as the unipolar power. You think Chairman Xi is dumb enough to look at George W. Bush and Barack Obama and John McCain and Joe Biden and say, yeah, that's what I want to do. I'm going to take a <laughs> giant pistol. I'm going to blow my country's brains out like these idiots. No, you know, look, man, there's really no question about this, except in the minds of people who just don't know anything about it. Okay. It used to be America ruled two thirds of the world and the commies ruled one third of it. And there were two superpowers, America and the Soviet Union, even though our economy was still far greater than theirs. And then the Soviet Union ceased to exist 30 years ago. And at that time, all the neocon hawks declared the unipolar moment. That's what Charles Krauthammer called it. Said our power is so much greater than the rest of the world right now that now's our chance to make the world the way that we want it. Before, ultimately, nations like Brazil and India and China and Russia again end up growing in their wealth and their power enough that we're going to have to take their opinions into account. It will then be a multipolar world, not a bipolar world or a unipolar world, but there are going to be these middle rank powers and growing who get to have a say sometimes. So what we want to do is take our unipolar moment to try to make everything great and to build a world order that everyone will participate in, in a way that's going to benefit long-term peace and security on the planet and the United States of America. I'll have you know, Charles Krauthammer is as guilty as any other man for provoking the illegal, unprovoked, aggressive American invasion of Iraq.
And it was Charles Krauthammer himself who drove American power into the ground. And then he died, which is good. But, um, you know, that was their own policy was we have a limited amount of time. At some point, China will be able to afford enough of a Navy that we won't just be able to push them around. Nobody said China is trying to dominate the whole Pacific Ocean the way we do. The question is whether, and in fact, this is Trump's Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, who was the CEO of Exxon, right. said China is beginning to threaten American domination of the Pacific. He didn't say they threaten America. He didn't say they threaten America's allies. He didn't say they're doing anything other than preventing us from having total power over the biggest ocean in the world, always and forever, all the way up to and including their coast. <laughs> you know, our Pentagon calls their military posture A2AD. This is always military newspeak, right? That means anti-access area denial. In other words, their entire posture is defensive. Their entire posture is made to keep us out. Big damned deal. And people talk about China somehow attacking the United States of America, sending their forces to North America. And this is just fun. Right. If you like being afraid on Friday night, then you can pretend to believe that. But that's not going to happen anytime in the next 100, 200, 500 years. You know, until, you know, until America gets in a war with Russia and the Chinese, the only ones left. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, it's crazy. I uh, I mean, a lot of people try to tell us that the Republicans have become anti-war. But if you've switched from fear-mongering about Iraq to fear-mongering about China. I actually think that's arguably worse, <laughs> you know, if you want to get us into a war with China. It's a more I'd rather be a war with Iraq. I'll give you that, you know, but yeah. yeah, I mean, and look, it's always been the case, right? When we talk about the populist right, what we're talking about is Republican voters as opposed to Republican owners and rulers. That's right. all we're talking about. The Tea Party, what's the Tea Party? Republican voters. What's the populist right? Republican voters. And what do they believe? What Mitch McConnell tells them to believe. 99% of the time. And who's Mitch McConnell? He's John McCain. He's George W. Bush. That's all he is. Centrist, rhino, zillionaire Republican who doesn't give a damn about a single man who has an actual job and never has. And so... You know, of course, you have discontent on the right with their rulers always. But then, geez, the other guys are worse. What are you going to do? Let yeah. the Democrats win? <laughs> so, and it's the same dynamic on the other side, too. You know, progressives yeah. and leftists hate the Democratic Party. But come on, man. You got to keep those other guys out. And, and that's how the game is played. It, it works every time, mm -hmm. you know? And look, on America First, Donald Trump has never heard, even to this day, he has never heard of the America First Committee, which was this massive coalition, you know, bipartisan, transpartisan coalition opposed to American intervention in World War II. He doesn't know what that is. No. And the way I'll tell you where he got that phrase from 
he was entrapped by the Israeli spy, probably, pretended journalist at the New York Times, David Sanger, the man who's lied 10,000 times that the Iranians are making nuclear weapons. Even though, hey, guess what? Joe Biden's nuclear posture review that came out last week admits that that's not true. They're not making nukes. They never have been. It says right there, David Sanger is a damn liar. But anyway, it doesn't say that. But anyway, um, Sanger was trying to entrap Donald Trump. And anyone can go back and read it at the New York Times and read the interview. Just type in David Sanger, Donald Trump, America first. And David Sanger says to Donald Trump, luring him into a trap. So Donald Trump, would you say that your foreign policy is America first? And Donald Trump goes, yeah, yeah, I like the sound of that. That sounds pretty patriotic, America first. Yeah, I'm an American and I, I want Americans to like me and I'd like that and that sounds good. And then you can see where David Sanger in the transcript goes, excellent, now I tricked you into identifying yourself with Charles Lindbergh, the notorious anti-Semite. Except that then the next bit is crickets because the American people have never even heard of Charles Lindbergh, the aviation hero, much less right. the very politically incorrect anti-World War II activist. They don't even know he's the guy that flew to France for the first time. They never heard of America first before. You'd have had to been in David Sanger's same college class to know that it's a terrible anti-Semitic albatross to say America first. That means you love Hitler, according to Sanger. And so that's all he was trying to do was entrap Donald Trump. But the problem is it didn't work because the American people liked the sound of that the same way that Donald Trump liked the sound of that. None of them knew that it had any connotations of Charles Lindbergh. And by the way, the America First Committee included classical liberals. And, you know, John T. Flynn was from The Nation magazine. There's all mm -hmm. kinds of great American patriots who are part of that. And the fact that Lindbergh said some anti-Semitic things from time to time does not change that fact. Uh, right. People should read Just Romando. They fought the good fight. It's a great piece all about the real history of the America First Committee. But anyway, so here's this scumbag David Sanger is simply trying to entrap Trump. But see, if Trump understood what it really meant, there's a whole history there. The old right, the liberals and conservatives and contrarians who hated FDR and did not want to go to war in Europe. And these are, in many cases, the forebears, people like Albert J. Nock and John T. Flynn and, you know, I think even Mencken and a lot of these guys who are the forebears of the modern libertarian movement. And... um. And so, but no, he never heard of that. It's just a couple of words in a slogan, something you put on a sign. And then, but so then that goes for all of his fans too. They don't know what the old right is. They've never heard of John T. Flynn or Albert J. Nock, and they don't have a isolationist bone in their body, a non-interventionist bone in their body. They're tough guy alpha males who like fighting and drinking beers and stuff and having sex with girls. What else do you need to know? Let's set a country on fire. Let's have a war. Let's be tough. Not like those weak Democrats. And then here we are again. It's just no different than George W. Bush. I swear to God, you could have Jeb Bush elected next time and they get in line behind that. As long as he's promising to do something violent. And look, man, I can identify with this a little bit. Like I've pled guilty. I've admitted this true before. I was all for Iraq War One. 
because I was a 15-year-old kid and I was a sociopath. And I didn't care about how many Iraqis got exploded to death. They're screaming babies burning and bleeding out and all this crap. I didn't know or care about that. I just like supersonic jets and tanks and explosions because I'm a heterosexual male too, dude. And I like to fight, although I'm not the toughest guy, but like I've been in a couple of scraps and held my own. Um, and so, yeah, man, explosions are cool, dude. Like, do you want to drive a little buggy or a big truck, man? And then, but that's supposed to be the difference between whether you want to have a war or not. Remember South Park's Iraq episode had nothing to do with Iraq. It was about, are you country or rock and roll? And if you're country, you want to invade Iraq. And if you're rock and roll, you don't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if a million people are going to die. Some idiot on KVET sang some stupid song about how Saddam knocked down the towers. So let's go. And then that was it. It's purely social psychology. Wimps don't want to fight. Tough guys do. America first as they head into battle on behalf of some foreign state. You know? Yeah. Tough. And you no. know what? I'm, I'm being too negative because what I should be doing is trying to be positive and trying to say, hey, you America first right wingers, I love you. Get your act together and and start winning these fights. And yeah. Start making America first mean something. You know, I'm not just trying to insult you. I guess I'm just too pessimistic. But the, the thing of it is, is there's a difference between being a war hawk and not. You know, being mm-hmm. good on Russia and bad on China doesn't make you an America first or not really. Believing Israeli lies about Iran, for God's sake, don't make you an America firster, you know? And yeah. people who regurgitate lies about Iran that they got from Israel, that they peddled to you, those people aren't your friends. Those people, how could they be believable on any other thing? You know? Yeah. No, I'm with you, man. I mean, um, I got a lot of friends who were MAGA people and they watch this show now and like they, I don't know. I mean, if they're actually tough guys, then they should be able to hear the truth, right? You should be able to tell them the truth and tell them, hey, stop getting fooled and should work. Yeah, man. Look, 20 years ago, they really had people believing that we had to invade Iraq or else something terrible was going to happen to us. I mean, what a bunch of crap. You couldn't tell a lie more false than that Saddam Hussein's regime posed a threat to a single American anywhere on this planet. It's just a lie. And people who bought that then ought to really ask themselves now, what was it about the incentive structure in their social life that made them believe in that crap instead of knowing better and saying better and standing up against it. You know, look at when Obama wanted to invade Syria. The narrative came out from Breitbart and therefore to all the talk radio in America. We don't believe in this war. Barack Obama's a liar and this war would benefit Al-Qaeda and we don't want to fight a war on Al-Qaeda's side. Well, that was true. That was true. And they said, well, I don't want to believe in that then. Well, the Iraq war benefited Al-Qaeda as much as the Syria war did. In fact, it was George W. Bush gave Al-Qaeda Western Iraq, and then Obama gave them Eastern Syria and made it the caliphate, 50-50 split. They're both absolutely as guilty. Although that's not really true because 
as horrible as Iraq War II was, Obama deliberately took the side of Al-Qaeda in Syria, whereas George Bush is just the dumbest piece of crap ever to sit in that chair and fought a war for his Iranian enemies that pushed the Sunni population of Iraq into the arms of his Al-Qaeda enemies. So, yeah, great job, uh, W, there. But, um, no, Obama, he knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, I urge people to look up Ben Swan's interview of Barack Obama from I'm certain it's early 2012. Yeah, it's you ever You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I've, I got to interview Ben Swan out of Freedom Fest, and I was asking him about that. It's an amazing okay. clip. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great clip. So Ben Swan says, listen, man, you're attacking Al-Qaeda in Pakistan and in Yemen right now, right? And he's like, yep. And he goes, so that's kind of strange, because how come you're back in Al-Qaeda in Syria? And Obama goes, well, you know, Ben Swan, I share those concerns. Yeah. And it's true that there are a lot of guys on our same side who are not good guys and who we don't want to win. That's why we're being so very, very careful about the aid that we're putting in. And that's why we're not giving them lethal aid, but only non-lethal aid. In other words, he's just outright confessing to high treason. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, all you had to do was get called out once. And he's like, I am guilty of (laughs) providing arms to suicide bombers sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher New York City. Take me away, Swan. That was Obama's answer. I belong in the darkest dungeon. Thank you very much. Quote, unquote. People can yeah. go look that up themselves. Yeah, it's I an wonder, amazing. Man, if Swan had just poked him, what else would he have confessed to, you know? <laughs> it's it's hey, hilarious, dude. too, because I oh. think like four days before that, he had interviewed Romney and just grilled the shit out of him. So oh, yeah. one That's of good. Obama's staffers just saw that and was like, oh, this guy must be on our side. So let's oh, hook I up see. an interview with Obama. <laughs> he, oh, man. Funny. I didn't know that boy. part of it. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah. Well, hey, man, thanks for... He, he cussed that ahead. whole thing of like local newsman who like you would think he could get an interview. You know what I mean? He like, yeah, yeah. And he was at a local news station there, but he carries himself very much like a local newsman, too. So it was... I'm sure that Obama was not expecting no. that question, you know. <laughs> yeah, right, I'm sorry. A, you were cutting me off here, man. Go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, his aides, I'm sure they were like, oh, man, Barack, this is going to be the easiest interview of your life. This yeah. guy was just grilling your opponent. And yeah, <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah, man, thanks for coming on. And um, I want everyone to uh, check out antiwar.com, Libertarian Institute, uh, his YouTube channel and his Twitter are all linked in the description. So go follow him at all those places. And I've got his website where you can buy his books links and the so audiobooks out too. Too. audiobooks if you're a truck driver like me that's what you want um Absolutely. it's easy to breeze through it uh you got anything coming up that you want to advertise uh yeah i'm doing stand-up comedy saturday here in austin with robbie the fire if you have any austinites in your audience go to the fire ticks t-i-x the fire ticks.com and um that's gonna be you know I'm either going to be funny or it's going to be funny watching me not be funny. So <laughs> one of the two of those things. And then um, otherwise, I don't have any events really for the rest of the year. I'm working hard on the book. If you go look at my Twitter account, I tweeted out the rough draft, uh, the first rough draft of the cover art of the book that I'm working on with um, Martyr May, the great podcaster, Daryl Cooper, Martyr May. It's called Provoked. America's role in the Russia-Ukraine war, and that'll be coming out sometime next year. All right, look forward to reading that one too. It's going to be a while still. 
All right, man. Well, thanks for joining the show. We'll get you back on soon. Hopefully things don't get too much crazier, but I'm sure they will. We can always count on these guys to make things worse instead of better. Right. Um, and yeah, anyone well, who's listening. Me, yeah, of course. Anyone who's listening in New Hampshire, we're doing a sign wave for Jeremy Kaufman on Saturday at uh, Murphy's Tap Room, I think from 10 to 2 or something like that. Uh, but we got an event on the Facebook page. So come wave signs with us. Both of the other options suck. If you watch the debate uh, the other night, they were arguing over who wanted to stay in Afghanistan longer and who was tougher on Russia and all this shit. So don't vote for either of those guys. Come help us out with the Kaufman campaign and we'll catch you guys on the next episode.